the joy and the privilege to bring to you our next chunk of scripture. As you know, we are going through the book of John. How long now has it been, Brayden? How many weeks are we on now? Do you know? 1700. This is what it feels like. All right. No, yesterday we, or yesterday, I'm getting days up. I don't know how I'm going to function next week. So last, uh, last week, we went through uh, John 16, the f- first part of that chapter, verses 1 to 15. And anybody remember what it was about or what the key focus was for that scripture? He said it was a test. The Holy Spirit, yes. Yes, trust, and we are going to be mentioning that. We're going to be coming back to that a few times during this passage. But for now, today, we're going to be looking at John 16, verses 16 to 33. We're going to close off John and ends with a bit of a mic drop. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with that term, but we've got a bit of a doozy ahead of us. It's a bit of a long scripture, so we're going to get started here. Verse 16, you can feel free to follow along in your own Bibles, or you can uh, pop it up back there. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, beautiful timing, thank you very much. She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete." Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
I had a mic, I'd drop it, but I don't want to, you know, pay money. So this set me off a little differently in a good way. Not set me off in a bad way, in a good way. Normally when I preach or if Ray comes up to me and says, hey, would you mind speaking some Sunday or speaking this Sunday? Yeah, sure, I'll just pick a topic and I'll just have at her. But no, this is different. I was actually given a text to work with. All right? So, strangely enough, the New International Version, that's the version I, I usually go through. Braden likes the ESV. It's still the same Bible. But the uh, NIV phrases this, the little, little title it puts above it, the disciples' grief will turn to joy. Now, people take something like that and they'll do two different kinds of, they'll do one of two different kinds of preaching, teaching, in regards to that. Uh, first is going to be the kind of more, what's called an expository or an exegetical standpoint, where they actually take the verse and they break it down bit by bit and to try and truly understand what it is that the speaker, the, the scripture, the text is saying literally. And then there's uh, some other preachers, and one that I usually do is more topical. So this whole, there's a part here, disciples' grief will turn to joy. They'll take that. They'll take that idea. They'll run with it. So I actually, I actually did uh, quite a bit of stress about that one on what to do. So I decided to <laughs> go back to an old commercial that used to air a couple of years ago for the uh, old El Paso home taco kit. Some people might know where I'm going with this one. So back a few years ago, there was a commercial for the old El Paso home taco kit, no sponsor. And the whole point of the commercial was they were arguing what was better, hard taco or soft taco. So there was this big argument, like a whole Romeo Juliet, uh, Montesquieu and what's the other family? Capulet. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. So it was like hard taco, soft taco, and then there's a little one girl, and she goes and she says, why not both? Or why don't we have both? Sorry. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull that line. I'm going to say, why don't we do both? My, my sermons are usually quite short, so this will probably beef it up a little bit. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look through, go by section by section through this, see and find out what John was really trying to say. Uh, let's look for any kind of hidden, mean, hidden meanings, go through the text so we can really truly understand what it is that I just read. And then we're going to take what I just read, we're going to mirror it and find some way to put it into some aspect of our lives. So by the end of this, you're going to be more, what's the proper terminology, intellectually experienced and spiritually enriched. It's an absolute win. Ten points to anybody who gets that movie reference. So we're going to start off, let's get nerdy. All right, so we're going to take a look at the first two terms that I said. One was expository preaching, and the other one is exegetical teaching. And I put my, if I still had it, I'd put my MCC hat on for this one. So expository teaching is basically the best way to phrase through Wikipedia as a as we all know, is a very trustworthy source. But it kind of hits it here. Expository preaching, also known as expositional preaching, is a form of preaching, use that word a lot, that details the meaning of a particular text or passage of scripture. 
It explains what the Bible means by what it says. Essentially, it's what's in, it's, uh, what is the Bible saying here? It's based on fact, no subject or emotion or any personal thought put into it. Exegetical kind of puts a more of a in-depth spin on it. Uh, Grace Theological Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana, on their site, phrased it this way. Uh, the definition of exegesis is the critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. Put simply, it is the process of discovering the original and intended meaning of a passage of scripture. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to go through this text. We're going to go section by section. Sorry if I'm speaking a little, a little fast. I'll try and slow it down so we kind of all understand what's going on. And we're going to do a fairly deep dive into each section, kind of go through it bit by bit dissect it and uh, see what's really going on here. So first thing we gotta do, we talk about anything. When you look at any kind of text, you always have to look at the context. So the context right now is what's happening at this time. So this is the final teaching of Jesus. After this, he has a prayer over disciples, a prayer over his life, and then the very next day, he gets arrested. So this is his pseudo-final talk, final speech. The other thing we're going to see in this one as well is a shift in the way Jesus speaks. As you've known, and we've gone through John before, Jesus loves to speak in parables in what's called figurative language, where he might not fully understand exactly what it is that he's saying. We actually see that switch happen near the end. So there's actually something very important, very cool I want to point out in the very first, uh, first section. So we're going to throw up John 16. Um, and I just realized my apologies to Lori, who did an amazing job on this. I was actually meant to go to verses 16 to 19, but that's fine. We'll read it here. So let's go with that first bit. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you will see me no more. Whose baby is that? <laughs> Inside joke. In a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, but then after a little while you will see me? I love this. Who remembers the movie Finding Nemo? Does anybody know the line I'm about to quote? <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> P. Sherman. Perfect. We have what's known here as a rule of three. Very, very common literary trick where it's uh, something that's repeated typically three times. The reason why that's so effective is that it actually finds a way to help bring ideas to mind or help commit things to memory. And we see it absolutely everywhere. 
What are the three R's? Reduce, reuse, recycle. You want to get better at something, what do you do? You practice, practice, practice. All right. When you're on fire, what's the three things you're told to do? Fun fact. Honestly, when I was learning that in school, I really thought I'd be on fire more often than I have been. <laughs> With how often they put that in, I thought it'd be like a daily thing. Anywho, let's get back on topic. So, as I said, it's used everywhere. Now, the reason why three times is effective is, kind of speaking, I, almost want, I want to use the term neurologically. Three is the smallest number of elements you can have for a dynamic pattern. It's the lowest number that you can actually have an outsider element to. Three stooges. Anybody any follow Blue Man Group? They follow the same rule. So what's so important about the line in a little while you'll see me no more. And then after a little while you'll see me. So what is so important about that? Essentially speaking, this is the main, it's part of the main reason we believe what we believe. Talking back to the resurrection here. Jesus is going to die. Sorry, spoiler alert. But then you will see me again. The resurrection. So, once again, this happens many times throughout John and throughout the, the life of Jesus. The disciples just don't get it. I don't know if you may have noticed this, but the disciples aren't the smartest tool in the shed. I can imagine a little bit of frustration here. It's like, you st you're still curious about this? You still don't know? But here's the thing. They had a whole different understanding of the, of the Messiah when they were growing up. They were taught the, the Jewish aspect of the Messiah. He was going to be, he was going to be the conqueror. He was going to rule over all the foreign nations. He was going to be the everlasting king. Jesus was not going to die. He was going to rule for eternity. He was going to bring, he was going to bring God back into the nation. He was going to bring it everywhere. He wasn't going to die. <laughs> You're silly. Don't be silly. But the thing is, this isn't even the first time. This isn't the first time he told the disciples he was going to die. Let's stick back with Matthew for a moment. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. I'm telling you things here. Next chapter, Matthew 17. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. They're starting to get it. But no, that can't be right. Let's go a couple chapters forward into Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. 
they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. You getting it yet? And even though, even still, just even going through John, that we just read through, there's even more times he said, hey, listen up, I'm going to die. Just so you know, heads up. Albeit this was a bit more subtle ways to do it. Going back to John 12, uh, verses 7 and 8. Um, this is where he was at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary took the, uh, the expensive por- uh, perfume, the, the expensive oil, and washed his feet. Jesus said, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. John 13, 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And then, in John 14, which we I just did just a few weeks ago. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, just talked about him last week, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all the things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Do you get it yet? This is where we see, start to see the change in Jesus' speech. Honestly, in my opinion, he just got frustrated. It's like, you didn't get me up fine. I'm telling you plainly what's going to happen. In the next section, the grief of the disciples. Let's take a look at verses 23 to 28 here. That's too small for me to read, so I'm going to read here. In that day, I am in the wrong spot. <laughs> 2022. Gosh, I got nervous. Who thought? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But her baby is born when she... But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into this world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. By the way, we're going back to that childbirth part. But right now, I'm just going to do a little bit of a word study. We're going to get to this is where you kind of get the exegetical side of what's going on. There's two words in this passage that I really want to look at. Run is the word grief. So, don't worry, I'll be gentle. For those of you playing the home game, Braden has a not-so-gentle history with this board. (laughs) So the first word, this is the Greek word for grief. You can judge my handwriting because no one knows how to actually read it. <laughs> Anyone want to take a stab at what this word says? 
It's lupe. And it's the same word that could mean sorrow, pain, and anguish. You will weep and mourn. You will grieve. You will have sorrow. You will have pain. You will have anguish. Side note, has anybody ever heard of the Mexican island of Guadalupe? Fun fact, they're not related one bit. <laughs> the second word we're going to look at is this one. Anyone want to take a stab at that word? It looks like sapa, but it's actually kara. Yep. It means exactly what you think, joy. And yes, the word charismatic does come from this word. Here's a little bit of knowledge for you. Here's the other thing about this word. It is used 57 times in the, in the New Testament alone at least according to the New American Standard. So if you have grief, lupe, joy, cara. This will turn into this. Our pain, our sorrow, our anguish is going to turn to joy. That sounds like a great thing to say out loud, but how the heck does that work? told you I was going back to the childbirth part. This is something I went through. Well, not me personally. That'd be very awkward. But it is something that I have been a part of three times already. And yet somehow, even after the first one, still wanted more. So why the heck is that? Who here was with, with of the of the... Husbands around you, who was with their wife when they, gave, when they gave birth? Who remembers that being such a joyful occasion, full of happiness? We were so happy. We were so peaceful. It was calm. It was great. Does anybody remember that? Let me ask that same question to the mothers. <laughs> was it a great time? Was it peaceful? Was it solemn? No, I'm pretty sure there was sorrow, there was pain, and there was anguish. But then, you hold the baby. It's all gone. Your lupe has turned to cara. I was really hoping there was some wordplay with that, but there isn't. Woe is me. Such as this. Disciples have been following this man for three years, listening to the words he's teaching, loving him ever so much. Hey, guess what, guys? I'm peacing out. That's all right. Right now, you're going to grieve. You're going to experience pain. You're going to experience hardship. But then I'm coming all back, and it's all going to be worth it. One of the reasons it's worth it, he goes on in the next verse. It's a new way to pray. 
Now we'll go verses 23 to 28. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have loved and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and enter the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Ever wonder why whenever we pray, we say in Jesus' name? Right there. Said by Jesus himself. I'm leaving you. I'm going to be with the Father. Everything you ask for in my name, you're going to get. So let's take a look at the wording here. I told you the way he was speaking was changing. This is it. There's no figurative, there's no beating around the bush right now. He is telling them as plain as possible I am going, I'm making a way for you to the Father. A lot of you have seen the the picture that's going to come up here. Projectors off. <laughs> no, look at this. I have a thing. I knew there was a reason I brought this. Very common illustration for those of you who, well, still probably need her up there. Here we have. gap in the middle. Jesus left man to go to God by dying on a cross. I don't know if I need to describe any more, but we can now we now have a way to God because Jesus made a way for us. Dying on the cross. Let's go back. Back to the Greek. Not quite yet, though. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. For all this time, people were thinking that. Jesus was a great teacher, a moral person, a good rabbi. No, he's telling them plainly, my father. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And then on verse 24... 
We get that lovely word, joy. Again, we get that kara. Your joy will be complete. Finally, we have a light bulb moment with the disciples. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things that you do not... Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Finally, ding, 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 disciples finally get it. Even then, Jesus still questions, do you believe? Because, spoiler alert, things happen. We have Jesus here making another prophecy or reference to events that can come. Some scholars will see this as sort of reflecting Peter's denial that he does not know, he does not know Jesus. Some can even go as far as I believe it's in the book of Acts when persecution scatters the church and therefore they spread the gospel. But there was one line in here that kind of threw me off. Kind of made me feel a little ill in the stomach. And that was, you will leave me all alone. So, in true exegetical fashion, or more expository, I did a little bit of research. One commenter put it this way, their belief that he came from God, back in verses 30 to 31, will not keep them from scattering from him to save their own skin. Jesus knows, however, that even if all humans desert him, he is not alone, for the Father is with him. I also checked to be more thorough, I checked some of the other translations as well. It's actually very simple after reading them. Even though you may all abandon me to save yourselves, I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And trust me, we're going to be coming back to that later. Might even go far, all the way back to Genesis. So now we have the final scripture that we're going to take a look at, the final verse, and it's verse 33. I have to make sure I read this one properly and carefully, because here is the mic drop. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have told you these things. In other words, so what I mean to say is, or there's a reason I'm telling you this, that you may have peace. This one's a little tricky. I had to write this one down myself.
I'm not even going to ask for this one. <laughs> this word is called erine. Everybody say erine. For some of you who may ha- study a little bit of Greek theology, yes, Erinne is also the name of the goddess of peace. But this word also means so much more than the word peace could mean. A state of tranquility, security, safety, prosperity, harmony. So much more than just a five-letter word, peace. But we're Christians. Why would we want peace? We believe in God. Our life is supposed to be on easy street. It's right here. You will have troubles. It's written right there, stated by Jesus himself, that our lives are not going to be easy. But that's fine. You know why? For I have overcome the world. And yes, world used here is actually the word cosmos, which means literally the world, everything. The world is quite literally everything we face. All the pain, all the grief, even death itself. He overcame it. All without committing any sin. In the letter of Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Just as we are. He had the same troubles, he overcame them. Because he was not alone. So as I mentioned in the beginning, there's two ways to look at this. You can go through bit by bit, take it apart, dissect it, and then we can find out what it means in our lives. When I was, uh, research, when I was researching this topic, I asked Braden for a little bit of help, and he actually provided me a book. Um, unfortunately, I made a joke along with it that you will not be able to see. Yeah, but that involves moving. So this is his quote. At the, he, it was, uh, it was a, uh, a textbook by, this is part of it, it was written by James M. Hamilton Jr. And what he did, he basically did what I did, is kind of go through bit by bit and gave his observ- observations in regards to each part. And at the end of it, he has a response section. At the beginning of that response, he put this. Jesus tells his disciples that when they see him raised from the dead, They will experience a joy that no one can take from them. Here we go. The enemies of Jesus can take away our possessions, our loved ones, our freedoms, our rights, and our jobs, but they cannot take our joy. 
Who here got major Braveheart vibes from that? Yes, I spent two minutes of my life making that. Please laugh and make it worth it. I'm sorry, I couldn't help but I couldn't help but picture that. But it's true. We have a joy that nothing can get rid of. Life can suck sometimes. There are times when we face things that we feel we can't take, that we can't make it through. But we can. Life is not an easy street, my friends. We are going to have troubles. We are going to have pain. We are going to have sorrow. We are going to have anguish. But we have a better future in mind. We know where we're going. We know exactly what it is that's ahead of us. Fun example about grief turning to joy. Who here absolutely loves to bathe their toddlers? Let's put it this way. Lillian doesn't like baths. As soon as the water touches her, all heck breaks loose. She is in pain. She is in anguish. She is suffering. She is grieving. But she's being cleaned. She's coming out of this cleaner, happier. Some of us may even have a hard time in our lives when maybe we're out of work. Maybe life isn't going the way we had planned, the way we wanted. You will have troubles in this world, but I've overcome them. See, the thing is, we're not alone. We're not alone one bit. even going all the way back to our creation. God made the world in six days. On the last day was when he made humans. And what did he say about everything he made? It was good. Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he has made, and it was very good. So when I feel, when I feel alone, whenever there is, I feel nothing's going right in my life, you know what God says? You're good. But God, maybe, maybe no one loves me. No one likes me. I'm all alone. No, you're good. But God, you don't understand what I've done in my life. I've done these horrible things. No, you're good. I made you. I made you the way I wanted to. I made you with my love because I love you. Therefore, you are good. Apologies to the, mic, to, the, to the music stand here. You are not alone. You're going to have grief. Life sucks sometimes. Lucky for us, you've heard a term, build a bridge and get over it.
Someone already did. We're not alone. We don't have to be alone. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who made us in his own image. We have a God who loves us enough that he sent his son to die for us, for our sins, even though we don't deserve one lick of it. How can that kind of love exist? The kind of love that could change any bit of grief to our joy, to our happiness, that can give us such peace through such hard times. How can that love exist? It exists because it wasn't easy. I take a look at my kids, the things I have made. And I'm sorry, but if one of you is having trouble and I had to take a look at my daughter, and my daughter's my son, I'd say no. I couldn't give that up. God did. God loves you enough. And now Jesus, God's own son, is now back with him to give us a way to God, to give us happiness, to give us joy.